There are many pain points as well as good practices that domestically oriented nonprofits and INGOs have in common. So I was keen to interview Nell Edgington, president of the consulting practice Social Velocity. Social Velocity helps nonprofit and philanthropic leaders create more effective social change, particularly domestically. Nell has written a book published this year that's called Reinventing Social Change, Embracing Abundance to Create a Healthier and More Equitable World. The book starts from the premise that nonprofit leaders limit the very impact that their organizations could have by constantly engaging in scarcity thinking rather than in abundance-based thinking. Nell's central statement, in other words, in the book, is that nonprofit leaders maintain self-limiting belief systems. What are these? Why does Nell think these leaders have these self-limiting beliefs and mindsets? And what could be done about it? In this episode, we discuss the potential of the concept of abundance thinking, as well as whether it has any limitations. Join us. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijveken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to NGO Soul and Strategy. And today I am going to talk with somebody who's very knowledgeable about domestic US and Canadian nonprofits and has written a book called Reinventing Social Change Embrace Abundance to Create a Healthier and More Equitable World. And that is Nell Edgington. Welcome, Nell. Thank you for having me, Tasca. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm just showing the book here. And Nell, um, dear listeners, is the president of her own consulting practice, Social Velocity. And Social Velocity helps nonprofits and philanthropic leaders to create more effective social change. Um, She's also, uh, I discovered that, one of my fellow ambassadors in a network that is called Leap of Reason Ambassadors. And that is an invitation-based network of nonprofit leaders, funders, government regulators, and analysts, consultants, and academics who are all motivated by the same desire to encourage the nonprofit sector to become more uh, performance uh, oriented and focused. Um, And that network spreads across um, US, Canada, 
couple of countries in the in um, in Europe and is gradually now also um, broadening from there. Nell is also a former senior level leader at several U.S. public broadcasting TV operations, or at least one. What uh, tell me, Nell? You've worked at several. Is that correct in public? Television? I worked. Yeah, I've worked at um, the headquarters, PBS headquarters in Washington D.C., and then also at the Austin, um, Texas affiliate. Okay, and just for for international listeners, so PBS stands for uh, Public Broadcasting Service. So that's the U.S. Uh, public television stations. So Nell, tell us a little bit about who you are. What kind of work do you like to do, and who are your typical clients? So I am passionate, as as you said, about making the social change sector more effective at actually achieving social change. And so I work as um, a management consultant through Social Velocity. I work with nonprofit and philanthropic leaders to help them become more confident, more financially savvy, uh, more effective at building their networks, all the things that are going to help them create organizations and movements that actually result in social change. I see. I see. And so your typical clients are, are they everywhere from small to very large size? Are they nonprofits and philanthropic actors? Uh, so it's both nonprofit and philanthropic actors. And their you know size can range anywhere from half a million all the way up to multi-million dollar organizations. Okay. So pretty big size indeed. Okay. So you just published a book this earlier this year, right? Reinventing Social Change, as I said, and it's about embracing abundance. Now you state in the book that nonprofit leaders maintain often self-limiting belief systems. What are these and why do you think leaders have these self-limiting beliefs and mindsets? So really, for me, the umbrella term for those limiting beliefs are, are the scarcity mindset. So in essence, a scarcity mindset is believing that there's never enough. There's never enough money, people, time, influence, power, whatever tools you need to create the social change you seek. So that, that thinking, that scarcity mindset, thinking that there isn't enough is so prevalent in the social change sector. It's, just, it's not just a nonprofit problem. It's also on the philanthropy side as well. Uh, but it is so prevalent because of the historical roots of the sector. So um, in, in the U.S., I'm speaking specifically here, the, the modern day social change sector was born from the benevolent movements of the 19th and 20th century, where women were primarily out doing the good works, the charity work. And men in the corporate world and government sector were providing, you know, pennies to help that that work. And so that from the very beginning, there was this power imbalance. I've never um, and, heard that. That's yeah. interesting for me. You know, I haven't lived in this country all my life, only in the last 18 years or so. But I never heard that analysis this way. It's yeah. interesting. So there was even a gendered aspect to it. Absolutely. And it's not just true in the U.S. And the reason I know this is because I wrote my senior thesis on the philanthropy in the U.K., which is also very similar um, dynamic. So, you know, my guess is that this is true throughout the world, but specifically my experiences in the US. And so that gendered dynamic has created all kinds of um, inequities between those who have money and those who don't. And it's caused um, this, this ethos in the sector of there's just not enough, not enough of all the things we need to do the work that, that we wanna do. But my argument is that's just a mindset. 
And so we can move beyond that scarcity-based mindset. And in fact, we need to move beyond it if we want to uh, truly achieve uh, a healthier, more equitable world. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to kind of probe a little bit with you in a moment. Um, uh, when you say that it's just a mindset uh, to, to kind of kick the tires of that a little bit. So, um, well, let me first ask you, so I'm very interested in organizational culture. And so to what extent um, have these self-limiting belief systems of leaders of these nonprofits also seeped into the collective mindset and the DNA of the organization, you think? How does that happen if it does? And what is the impact of that? So I would say it's it's seeped into the entire sector. So it's prevalent on our boards of directors. It's prevalent in our senior leadership teams. It's prevalent, you know, through the, the people on the front lines doing social change work. It's prevalent in funders, whether they're government or philanthropists, foundations, individual donors. It's, as I said, it's this ethos in the sector that there just isn't enough of anything that we need and particularly money. That's that's the one, you know, that everyone is just so front of mind for, for everyone. Yeah, yeah, There's just yeah. not enough money to do the work. Okay. Um, can we talk more about how this is related to being beholden to what some people call the overhead myth? So, and um, may I ask you to also explain a little bit again for those people in our audience globally that may not necessarily have heard that particular term? Yeah. So the overhead myth is this, again, this, this limiting belief, um, I would say, in the sector that says that nonprofit organizations cannot spend more than 20% uh, of their budget, of their annual budget on fundraising or administrative costs. So in other words, there is a ceiling on how much nonprofit organizations are allowed to spend on, mm. you know, the things that are really going to make the organization run, are really going to make the programs effective, are really going to help you achieve your mission. It's, you know, your ability to bring money in the door. It's your ability to, you know, have systems in place to do evaluation, you know, all the things you need to actually achieve your mission. I so see. that's, that's that. That's but, a, it's a myth. But, but let's, let's push that uh, a little further. Um, that overhead myth, isn't that very real in some ways? I mean, for years, as you know, um, through, and this is maybe historically, definitely has been a critique on Charity Navigator and mm -hmm. full disclosure, I'm on their consultative council for nonprofit leaders. Um, but influential here in the US, influential web-based rating mechanisms like Charity Navigator and many others used to, not anymore so much, thankfully, but used to really hold organizations to account and punish them if they went more than, if they spent more than 20 to 25% on their overhead plus fundraising costs, et cetera. And the norm in amongst donors, both small individual donors and high wealth internet, in individuals was very firmly established that that was basically made a lot of sense. And you hear it still a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So is it fair to call that a self-limiting belief system or are there real consequences if nonprofits and leaders decide to ignore that? 
Well, so I would say there's consequences to all of these restrictive norms, limiting beliefs. You know, my whole first chapter of my book is about this whole broken system Mm. um, that nonprofits are forced to operate in. So for me, step one is let's pull back the curtain and let's call BS on all of these things, all of these limiting beliefs, these restrictive norms, these um, restrictions that we put on nonprofits and the work that they do, let's pull back the curtain and say no more, that this is ridiculous. Mm. It's, it's actually impeding the work of social change. And so if we as foundations, as government leaders, decision makers, policymakers, whatever, if we truly want a healthier and more equitable world, we need to stop these all of these restrictions that are being placed on the sector. Hmm. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting because as you'll recall, there uh, I used to there was a time when I was what I call an accidental academic, and so saw some of the academics who started who both explained the overhead myth and why it was so firmly still in place at that time. This is now you know five to ten years ago, um, but also critiqued it from an academic perspective and saying, like you say, and like so many of us have said, this is an unhelpful uh, myth and we really need to bust it now. Um, um, it is probably, by the way, much more um, influential that thought leaders like yourself and others are saying it than when academics alone uh, alone say it. But it, it, it has been very strong. And you'll recall, um, what is it now, about 10 years ago, Dan Palata came out with this very widely viewed TED Talk. Mm-hmm. You can still see it about the overhead myth. And he blasted it and was actually you know, advocating that nonprofits should feel that there's no limit for, for instance, how much they pay their their um, their leaders in terms of salary. Do you have a perspective on that issue of how Dan posited that, and um, especially around the salary issues or unlimited um, funds for fundraising, for instance, as long as the return on fundraising was still worth it? Well, so you know, at its at its core, I. Uh, fundamentally agree with Dan's argument, you know, from long ago, which is, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, how I interpreted his argument. Ultimately, we should treat nonprofits the way we we treat, um, you know, for-profit businesses. And I make that same argument in my book, that the restrictions that I'm uncovering about the nonprofit sector are not present in the private sector. So the private sector can lobby and you know, spend all kinds of resources on lobbying and influencing policy, which the mm-hmm. nonprofit sector cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, for private, pri- uh, the Fortune 500 businesses have upwards of up to 78% um, overhead rates for you know, some of the, the corporate work that they do. They hold much higher reserves than nonprofits are allowed to do. The list goes on and on. And so the fundamental argument that we need to treat both sectors equally and allow the same kind of you know, rules to apply to each. I fundamentally agree with that. You do agree with that. That's interesting. And then and I have a, a, a lot of sympathy for the only thing is I remember that at the time when Dan came out with that very popular video, and I also used to show it to students in my class. And then 
ask them to come with their opinions, is that I remember there was a, a pushback by back then the, the head of a church, Navigate Ken Berger, who I also know and who was who came to Syracuse University when I worked there, who said, well, not so fast. There, there ought to be certain limits on, let's say, salaries of nonprofit leaders, even if they are not the self-imposed limits that we are beholden to right now. How would you respond to that? I would say, let the market decide. So, you know, how you attract, everyone every, everyone knows the way that you attract top talent is that you let the market dictate, you know, what that salary is going to be, what those incentives are going to be. And so why is that not true in the nonprofit sector as well? If we truly want top talent in the sector, why would we not pay them, um, you know, what that talent is worth? Okay, okay. You mentioned um, just the word reserved. And actually, I, that's where I wanted to go now, financial reserves. So a number of uh, international uh, NGOs that I work with um, definitely have have a feel a very constrained ability to build up reserves to then strategically invest later on, right? Because they don't want to be seen as holding on to money that, quote unquote, should be going to, to program, even if that building of reserves can both um, shore up resilience in lean times, like we've just now seen again, um, or as I said, can be saved towards a much greater investment towards greater impact. Talk to us a little bit about um, how that, is that a belief system? And is that something that is also, I, I saw that that is discussed in your book as well. Tell us more about the argument in the book that you make about reserves. So again, a healthy organization, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, needs to have a reserve fund. It, it allows all the things that you've articulated, right? Resilience, the ability to manage cash flow, ability to do research and development, mm. you know, all sorts of things. And again, if we truly want these organizations and movements to be successful at achieving social change, why would we not want to give them the same kind of tools that for-profit can have? In turn, and in this case, we're talking specifically about reserves. Reser having a financial reserve is a huge tool in your toolkit. Yeah. And so why would we not allow that for social change organizations to have that flexibility, you know, that ability to, to really provide impact, R&D, you know, all of those things? Mm, okay. And how about one more dimension that I'm interested in interested in unpacking with you, and that is uh, the, the the quote unquote helper syndrome. So the idea that uh, perhaps many of us staff at all levels, not just leaders in the nonprofit sector, walk around with is that uh, we are kind of the helpers in society, and the detrimental aspects that that can have for mindset but also for practice. How does that uh, come up in your book? So I talk about um, overgiving versus generous giving. So mm. when you are overgiving, you are coming from a place where you yourself are depleted mm. and you are giving really from an empty heart because you want something from the person or the entity or the thing that you are giving to. You need mm. you know, the recognition or you need to feel that you fixed something or whatever it is. You're trying to, to fill yourself up with that versus generous giving. You are out in the world giving to others from a full heart. You yourself are fully fixed, fully healed. You are ready and willing and able to go out and serve as a leader 
um, to others. And so what I see in the, again, in the social change sector is so often folks are attracted to the sector, myself included, because you want to fix things. You know, you see things wrong in the world. You have maybe a, a strong empathy bone, um, whatever it might be. But the trick really is to, to figure your own stuff out first. And in, in the case of a nonprofit leader in their organization, you know, get to a place of abundance yourself, a place where you're not trying to, you know, just kind of uh, stay afloat and just kind of keep things moving forward, but get to a place where you are fully full, your organization is fully full, and then you are able to go out and actually help your clients, mm. you know, whatever the, the social change that you seek. So that yeah. comes all back into the overhead myth that you that if we do not believe in it, we can invest more in ourselves, uh, in our organizations, in our organization, in our capabilities, in our self care, etc. I want to pull that helper syndrome one link to one more thing, and that is you know the the era that we live in with racial reckoning, anti racism, and a greater emphasis on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, you know, in the international uh, nonprofit and international development and poverty aid sector, there is uh, a lot of attention now to what is in that context called the, the white gaze on development, the fact that often it's white people. And that is, I think, also historically, if I go back to the history of charities in this country and in many Western countries, at least global North countries um, <clears throat> of white people who wanted to fix things or help things yep. or being charitable, etc. How do you, uh, so from a mindset perspective, so you and I are both white, um, how has this um, helper syndrome also shown up maybe in not so positive ways in, in our sector from a, from an anti-racism perspective? Um, absolutely. So, so again, for me, it all goes back to first fixing your own issues and your own things. So if you as a white leader are, you know, out there trying to work on race-based issues or inequalities, you need to start first with your own you know, uh, internal racism, if that's present or, you know, whatever your mm -hmm. own issues are and come mm -hmm. from a place where, again, you are fully healed and are then able to um, to work with other, others. I would also say that we need to get over as a sector this thing of thinking that here are the helpers and here are the people who need help. Mm. It's really, and I talk about this in my book, um, your target populations, the clients, whoever the people you believe you are serving need to be fully integrated equal partners in the work, um, and as do funders. And so my vision for the world, a social change sector that, that is maybe further developed, is that we are all, all these groups are coming together as equal partners, those with money, those with potential solution, those that, you know, uh, want to be partners in this work, all coming together as equals to move the work forward. And to me, that's a huge shift but again, goes back to overgiving. If you're not coming from a place where you are fully healed and fully able to be an equal partner, then mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to help or fix or any of those other things that you, you're trying to accomplish. Hmm. But how um, uh, equal partners in um, our sector of international um, number of that has been used bandied around for decades that's is proving to be time and time again to be pretty difficult to realize because money is power 
how in the your domestic U.S. nonprofit non, uh, sector do you see that that equation changing so that it, we can make this real that those who quote unquote help and those who quote unquote air quotes um, are helped really are equal partners. So first of all, I would push back on your um, your statement that money is power. Okay. I don't believe that at all. Tell money, me. money is simply energy, like anything else, like love, like, you know, whatever it is, money is just simply there. The, absolutely, there have been people and are, still are people who choose to use money in a way that helps them um, take power over somebody else. But no one can have power over you without your permission. And so one of the chapters in my book is titled Reclaim Your Power. I believe that each one of us individually, and in my book, I'm specifically talking to nonprofit and philanthropic leaders, we each have the opportunity to fully step into our power and to stop giving our power away to funders, to money, to government officials, to policymakers, to whoever it might be, and to, to instead stand up and say, you know, here's what I want, here's the path forward, here's what it's going to take. And so completely, and in doing that and stepping into your own power, you can completely change the dynamic with your funders. And so you can start to understand that it is an equal partnership. Here are the folks that have money and want to use that money for some social good. And here are the folks that have a solution and want to use that money to, to realize that solution. So to me, that it's all about, again, a mindset shift and, and thinking about your power very differently. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's very interesting what you, what you bring up. Um, Cause you're saying if the nonprofit is positioning itself as, listen, you have money and you're interested in stimulating social change. We have solutions that makes you per definition uh, equal there that is that it's not necessarily a power inequity that is built into that is that how you have seen it work out in practice absolutely so one of the biggest things i do with my coaching clients because i coach um, nonprofit and philanthropic leaders is to help them reframe that dynamic reframe that relationship with their funders so for example i have a client that um, you know, previously felt very beholden to a corporate funder that she had, a, a corporate funder who, by the way, helped cause the original problem that she mm. developed her nonprofit for, which is often how yeah. those things happen, right? Yeah, it's kind of distorted. <laughs> yes, and so she was in this relationship with this corporate funder where you know she felt very beholden to, to them and to their money. And so I worked with her over many, many months to really reframe that relationship and to help her realize, okay, first of all, that that's just wrong because you are actually solving a problem they created. And they, by the way, want you to solve that problem. And so let's, let's think about this as an equal relationship and you can start coming to them with, okay, here's where your money could be put to best use. I'm the expert in this scenario. So let's work together towards this vision that I have. And so we worked over, you know, again, many, many months to, to change her language, to change her framing, um, you know, to change how she interacted with the funder. 
you know, there's all sorts of things, but it comes from that mindset of thinking, you know, I am not beholden to these folks. I'm actually uh, offering them, a, you know, a real opportunity to change the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I was able to read um, several of your chapters, but not all of them. So do you describe this particular case or a case like that in your book? I do. You do. Great. Then I need to go back into that because that makes, that sounds like also a beautiful case study. Yes. Uh, So, so good for you that you did that work. Okay. Let me turn to one more question before we get to a couple of kind of a a couple of random um, prompts uh, towards the end. So let's focus a little bit on boards. You have a chapter on boards, which I read with interest. So let me just tell you a little bit, uh, Nell, about my observation. So while Boards, obviously, in many uh, countries are a legal requirement uh, for nonprofits and are often an unquestioned social norm, kind of, right? Uh, I know quite a few CEOs and other senior leaders who are saying, "Mm," if you ask them candidly, what is in terms of kind of rough cost benefit analysis, how much value uh, are we getting as an organization out of our board vis-a-vis the significant transaction costs that we have to put into it? Um, mm, it's not a great return. There's <laughs> quite a bit of dissatisfaction also about the fact that quite a few CEOs feel that they don't think their boards understand well how the landscape is changing all the time. They find uh, that their boards are uh, frequently not interested or open to new thinking. So how does your book analyze this and what kind of solutions does it offer? So I completely agree with you that um, in the nonprofit sector, there's an enormous amount of frustration with boards of directors. But to me, that's a missed opportunity. And again, it is evidence of a scarcity mindset. So it's 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 nonprofit leaders. And it It happens on the philanthropy side too. I mean, let's be honest, foundation boards can be incredibly frustrating. Um, But to me, it's a missed opportunity. And the opportunity, I I see this so often, and again, you know, coach uh, my clients on a lot of this, but is to really develop your board to start to see each individual member as a potential asset and, you know, to help them really understand what their role is on the board and how they specifically and uniquely can bring value. So doing exercises where you, you know, work with each individual board member to understand, like, what do you bring to the table? Mm -hmm. And how can specifically and how can we put that to better use, um, etc. So it's really flipping that script. And instead of being stuck in, you know, my board is so frustrating, they're never enough, they never step up, they don't blah, 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 blah. Instead, shifting that to say, okay, well, they're not there yet. But what could we do? How could we work to develop them? How can we? And, and a lot of times you don't have the right folks on the board. Again, from this position of being overly grateful, you think, oh, just having some warm bodies, we're good mm-hmm. to go. No, actually, you're not. So you can get much more strategic about exactly what are the skills, abilities and networks we want our board members to have and then being very smart about recruiting those right people and then developing them so that they can actually put those skills, experience and networks to use for your, for your board. Mm-hmm. And you have, uh, have you also experienced that with clients in your coaching that they can 
transition the boards towards that stage? Absolutely. Absolutely. I see this all the time. And once you really engage your board, get them excited about where you're going and how you need them specifically and individually and uniquely to contribute to that greater vision, the energy in those boardrooms shifts and you start to have board members showing up more often, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally. Yeah. Um, and you really start to see them um, move forward in really big ways. Okay. Interesting. All right. Let's, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of, or give you a couple of prompts of sentences that I'd like you to finish um, that um, you may link back to what we just discussed, or you may come out of left field with a whole new idea. So the first sentence is a bold idea that I recommend is dot, dot, dot. Did you say a bold idea? A bold idea that I recommend is dot, dot, dot. For nonprofit and philanthropic leaders uh, to pull back the curtain on how broken our sector is and what we can do to fix it. Okay. And I may come back to you in a moment on, on that one if we have time. And one more. Before we make our next move on the journey towards abundance thinking, we cannot neglect to dot, dot, dot. To um, fix our own issues. So to really, truly move into abundance, you have to um, eradicate scarcity thinking in your own individual life. So it's very much the individual work has to happen before a leader can really translate that to their organization or to the wider sector. Mm. yes just one more moment coming back to what you just said we have to pull back the curtain on what's broken in our own sector right over and beyond uh, you you write in the book eloquently about how at the org level and at the individual level and at the board level etc we can pull back from that scarcity thinking and move into abundance thinking as a sector what can we do towards um, government regulators, towards funders, et cetera, to change and towards donors, small donors? Um, what can we do to um, change their mindset about how they look at us? So um, I love this question because I always get it. Um, and what I will say is change your own mindset. So the the biggest move you can make to change the sector's mindset, to change your funder's mindset, to change your board's mindset is to change your own mindset first. And so, so often I hear people saying, yeah, I'm totally on board with the abundance mindset, but oh my gosh, my board is not. They are so steeped in scarcity or my funders are so steeped in scarcity. That simply means that you are still stuck in scarcity, right? So what you wanna do is really um, fully move into that abundance presence and that energy will get your board excited and moving forward and starting to see, I see this all the time with my clients, a leader starts to get excited about the possibilities, the opportunities, the big moves forward, mm-hmm. that energy moves the board meeting in a completely different direction. It moves their funder meetings in a completely different direction. And so it always comes back to the individual. And this is the argument I make in my book. Change never happens just broadly in our, on our planet. Change never happens 
because you know those that are um, least impacted by the problem suddenly wake up and say, oh, we should change this. No. It happens because people that are impacted by the problem, and in this case, nonprofit leaders, step up and say, no, I'm not going to play by these broken rules anymore. This is not how this should work. And they start to stand in their power and move towards abundance. I see. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time. So let me ask you, if audiences want to learn more about you, Nell, where should they go to find out? To my website, which is socialvelocity.net. And I also have information about my book. Um, You can download the first uh, chapter of that, see if it resonates with you. Um, But also on LinkedIn. Also on LinkedIn. Okay, Mm -hmm. excellent. We will put these in the... um, um, in the, the show notes so our listeners can find them there so I want to thank you Nell very much for all the insights um, you've given us and you've given me some some food for thought I really like how you pushed back on the money is power concept and gave that a different uh, framing altogether and thank you listeners if you found this podcast episode stimulating then be sure to check out the other episodes on the podcast which you can find on my website, five as in the number, fiveoaksconsulting.org, also on my new YouTube channel. And uh, if you subscribe to that or to the podcast, you're always the first to be in the know about new episodes. I also want to let you know that we um, we have a book, uh, my fellow uh, co-authors um, and myself, it's called Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. So maybe alongside Nell's book, Reinventing Social uh, Change, this is another book that you might want to put on your um, on your wish list. Be sure to future-proof your career by investing in skills around virtual team leadership. We just started hosting an online course on that, and you can find more on that on uh, our website as well. So this is Tosca. And I look forward to spending time with you next time on NGO Soul and Strategy. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website and follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.